friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Welcome to the MC Lars podcast. This is episode 57. This week is with artist Chasen Mathams. It is Monday, September 30th. Happy Rosh Hashanah. It's the Jewish New Year. Holler. Chasen Mathams is a G. And I've known this dude for 20 years. We went to the same middle school together and the same high school together. He was in my sister's class. He was a year older. And he ended up working on um, Jeff and Some Aliens, which was Sean Donnelly's show um, on Comedy Central. And Sean was on a few episodes ago. But Chasen is a fine artist. And not only is he a good artist, he's a fine artist. He's a painter. He talks about how he does post-internet art. He does these really cool detailed renderings. And his stuff is just very technical and kind of funny and surprising and weird and beautiful. And I love this episode because I've never had like a painter on the podcast. I've had rappers, writers, my parents, you know what I'm saying? But never like an artist, like a painter. And one of the cool things he said is how artists who are like visual artists only need to have a few people love their art, buy it for their collections, and then they're famous. They paint for a smaller audience. Whereas doing media, streaming media, audio media, music, movies, you have to try to cast the net for a big audience. And so it was very interesting hearing Chasen's approach, his business. He got his undergrad at NYU in fine art, and then he did his MFA. And now he teaches there, but really part-time. He mainly spends time in his studio in Manhattan, painting these crazy canvases. And one of them that I really loved is the Marge Simpson, like the surreal 3D Marge Simpson. He did a residency up in Maine and painted this giant canvas. But stuff is cool. So chasonmathams.com, that's C-H-A-S-O-N-M-A-T-T-H-A-M-S.com, or just look at the name on the podcast. He's on Instagram. He's got a website. He's killing it. So this is a very cool episode. Oh, and one other thing we talked about is how I've interviewed a lot of people from my high school. Sean Donnelly, Chris Gase, Mr. Salerno, Sam Salerno, the teacher, now Chasen. Just, a, you know, they're my friends and stuff, but it's like a creative cadre of fools who went into the arts and the humanities and somehow figured out how to make it work. This week's episode is brought to you by the Patreon Larshans. As always, shout out to the new ones. The ones who sign up on the Aquabats tour. They came and saw me and signed up. Chris Shirley, Morgan Miller, and Spencer Wood. Awesome homies. Thank you very much. Morgan is a photographer who takes great pictures. Great guy. And shout out to the old ones. Alex Anderson, Lewis Simpson Jones, and Anthony Perkis. Thank you all for keeping the Patreon going. It's never too late to sign up for the Patreon and get all that flavor. This month, September, I had a song about Aleister Crowley. And then another song about a llama. It was an outtake from Zombie Dinosaur that I redid where I rap in Spanish for a large part of it. So if you want to hear MC Lars rapping in Espanol, necesitas support the Patreon. And that's what's up. So let's jump into this podcast. Before we do, yes, I'm going on tour again, my friends, on the West Coast this time with Oakley Doakley. They dress like Ned Flanders and sing about Ned Flanders. I think that's freaking cool. It's a short tour. It's a short West Coast tour. October 4th, San Diego. October 5th, Costa Mesa, which is Orange County. October 6th, my birthday. I'm playing the Bay Area. It's freaking cool. Then I do a show by myself up in Arcata, which is in the Humboldt County. It's near Humboldt State University. And it's with a group called The Jack Moves. So check that out. I've never played up there, but I've been up there a lot, and I love that part of the state. Then I go to Bellingham, Washington, October 8th, Portland, Oregon on the 9th, Seattle on the 10th, 
Denver on the 13th. And that is it for the tour so far, booked for the year. Just working on stuff, and that's what's up. So let's get into it. This is my interview with Chasen Mathams on the MC Lars podcast. Chew. Ladies and gentlemen, from Pacific Grove, California, now living in New York City, I'm here with Chasen Mathams. Hey, Chasen. Hey, how's it going? How long have we known each other? Um, I was trying to figure that out. I, I think you said 25 years, maybe, if it was middle school that, that we started, because I started Stevenson Middle when I was in fifth grade. And you were in my, oh, you were in fifth grade. You were in my sister's class. Yeah, I was in your sister's class, Sarah's class. And uh, you were the grade below me, I, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I always looked up to your class. Were you did, were you there in fourth grade? No, I went to Santa Catalina for for f- that year. Oh, okay. Because it's kind of a long story. My parent, we used to live in Oakland, and my dad got a new job, oh, so right we moved on. down. And I liked she liked Stevenson, and I liked Catalina. But then I shift, I switched. Oh, that's funny. So, huh? Where where did you go to lower school? Um, well, I, well, first I, I went to, uh, Robert, uh, well, no, I'm sorry. I went to Robert Down in Pacific Grove, uh, the public school because we lived on 14th street right below it. Yeah. And then I think someone convinced my mom that I, that I, in order to get into the high school, which is a boarding school and more exclusive, that it would be good if I went to the middle school, which now that I look back on it, it was kind of like, oh, he's probably too dumb to qualify for the uh, high school. So we got to get him in there early. So they'll just allow him. <laughs> so you, oh, that's interesting. Do you have a, don't you have a brother? I do. I have a, a younger brother, Keen. He's here younger than me? Yeah. He was in the class below you. Wow. Yeah. And he started up at the same time as me. So, yes. We were talking at the beginning of this interview that I've had many people, either former alumni from Stevenson and even a, a teacher, Mr. Salerno, on the podcast. Yes, yeah, yeah. And it's been wonderful to listen to all of them, too. And we mentioned you on the one with Sean, mm-hmm. with Jeff and some aliens. Yeah, yeah. Sean, who yeah created Jeff and some aliens. And part of the reason I probably moved to New York as well, too, uh, he went to NYU and was in the film program, and I wanted to transfer in. And at some point, he had told me that he had seen in Washington Square Park both a Backstreet Boy and uh, and uh, who was it? One of the guys, uh, some rapper or something like that. And I was like, "Oh, that's all I need. Like, I should be in New York if you see Backstreet oh, like Boys MCA from the Beastie Boys." Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's who he saw. And I was like, "Sold. Okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to come to New York after this." <laughs> so I was at San Francisco State University, and then came out here for that. But, wow! So you transferred sophomore year? Yeah, sophomore year. But then have been doing uh, things for Sean for a long time, mostly animation stuff as well. Man, there's, yeah. there's a lot to unpack with that. Because <laughs> yeah. you are, it's interesting that there's a lot of transplants from the Bay Area that do come to New York. Mm-hmm. And I think as the Bay has become more like stultifying and Silicon Valley-ized, mm-hmm. people are leaving, you know? Yeah. And then there's yeah. people like you who just, who had left and stayed on the East Coast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I get to go home quite often. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky and I get to see my family there and uh, even get to go to San Francisco quite a bit. But yeah, it, it feels like even from when we were little and probably visiting San Francisco or when you, I guess, lived in, in Oakland, like it is, it has changed dramatically up there and yeah. definitely does not feel as creative as a place anymore. You have an amazing studio here in uh, Manhattan. Yes. You gave me the tour, and it's we're doing the interview 
in your studio that you share with some other artists. Yes, yeah. And, and I didn't realize that um, the Wall Street area had like special special spaces like this. Do you want to talk a little about the history of this room? Yeah, it's uh, it's so it's above this bar called Killerney Rose. It's been here since 1969, um, and I believe um, that at one point there was a. It's a four story building in the middle of all these high rises, so it's a kind of weird situation in the first place. But at one point on the top floors, they they had like one of the first computer companies in the 70s, and it went out of business, I think. And uh, next door, there's this woman who was doing props for you too and the guy who owned it was like well the, the person the artist person is like paying the rent and they haven't gone out of business so we'll get some more artists in here so I feel like now the guys that own it kind of as an homage to their great-grandfather kind of keep uh, keep us around maybe uh, yeah, cool. I don't know but uh, it's been it's been wonderful to have this space though yeah and it's a close commute for you yeah I'm up in the Lower East Side so teach at NYU um, as well. So I'm kind of just been in the East Village downtown area for almost, yeah, the entire time that I've been in New York, all 19 years now. Dude, that's crazy. And it's crazy to think you were here when 9-11 happened, right? Yeah. You just moved. Yes, I'd, I'd been here only for about a month and a half or something like that, I believe. Wow. Yeah, so that was the intro to new york at that point um yeah oh my god man and uh yeah i I guess the way that i registered that was through like just the new energy of being in new york as well too um but i don't know if you remember my mom was a, a flight attendant um for united airlines for a long time um so that morning was a, a little bit scary just because uh i knew my mom was getting on a flight then and before i figured out that you know what the flights were and everything i just knew that one of those planes was a united plane so and cell phones weren't working so it was a little scary for a while on a personal level but she was fine and um yeah but it was it was pretty wild the whole situation i mean to be in yeah to be away from home and, yeah and sean talks about how he 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 didn't he film it or something he filmed a lot of it yeah. yeah he was he was right down here on water street in one of the dorms which is from the studio really only two blocks away or something like that so he was very very close to it wow. i was up on 12th street so i was a little bit further away um but yeah i think that that was i mean that was sean and i's both of our instinct was to grab our cameras and just kind of go out onto the streets and see what was going on um, so you have footage of it too yeah yeah wow. yeah has anyone I've, seen it um i think only, i think my brother watched it one time to tell you the truth yeah um but i don't i've i've gone back to it maybe a couple times and it's it's just a bunch of people arguing in the parks basically and and lights flashing and all the posters going up so it's it's mostly just a jumble of of energy and kind of i don't know yeah that's heavy it's yeah heavy and sad yeah not, not something you want to go back and watch no not 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 all the time but i mean i feel guilty at that point that i that, when i think back to it because i only registered it as energy then i was just like i guess this is new york i mean i guess this is just a thing that that happens here um and uh yeah it didn't really like the tragedy of it seeped in over a longer period of time i think um and i actually just went down to the 9-11 museum for the first time oh yeah and that's just like I mean, it felt weird putting all of that into this like museum designy sort of, you know, it just felt like 
like uh, like pornography in some way. It felt really weird. In the but, gift shop, right? Yeah, and there's like a gift shop, and everything's just organized too neatly, and they have yeah, all the dude. posters from that time. Um, but I don't know. Maybe it's a good thing. I don't know what's right or wrong. It just felt weird for me. You know what really affected me? The only time I needed a, a Kleenex, I mean, it was sad, was the room where they play the messages that people left their spouses and stuff. Oh, yeah. That's heavy. Yeah. You hear, I, I love you, and, I, you know, I'm thinking of you. I'm not hurting. Yeah. It's yeah. Heavy. <laughs> yeah. I was, I, I don't think I could spend much time with that to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was glad to leave. And there was a woman, I went with my parents and there was a British woman in front of us in line mm-hmm. and it was like her third time going. Wow. And I was like, is this a destination for people, international yeah. people? I was like, what, what? I couldn't, I yeah, wouldn't want to go back. Yeah. It seems to be that way. I mean, it felt like going through like the Holocaust museum or something when we were younger where then that was just very informative and you felt like you were learning a lot of history, but it just made me think about like, what about the people that were there then who, if they're going through the Holocaust museum now, I mean, that's got to, I don't know. And of course it's, those analogies aren't the same at all, but I, 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 it's not the way that I process that sort of thing, but I could see that it could be a helpful way for other people to process it, to go to a museum like that. But for me, it just felt really weird. And it's the last thing we could say about it, if, unless you want to talk more about it. But I thought it was interesting how they pointed the finger at the at the at Bush and his crew for having incorrectly um, attributed the disaster. You know, hmm. the aftermath element that, hmm. that was like up. You know what I mean? The history there. I don't, yeah, yeah. That was interesting. Huh? Oh, and yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I didn't spend much time with that that yeah. either. <laughs> I, I, what's being revealed here basically is that I went in and closed my eyes and just walked through as fast as I could. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, that's well, terrible of me. Well, one of the things. Okay, so. I'm going to post a link to your, some of your art when, mm-hmm. when we post this. One of the things that you don't close your eyes <laughs> for is your very intricate, technical, inspired pieces. And we're surrounded by your giant canvases. And it always surprised me and, and, and made me impressed that like you really found your path. You stuck to it. You mm-hmm. went to grad school for it. Mm-hmm. You made a business around it. And you believe in the power of the canvas and i've never had an artist on the podcast who who's just who's an artist and you're also a teacher but who who that's their path painting mm-hmm. everyone's gone digital and yeah let's talk about that yeah i mean it's it's a weird thing and the art world occupies like this this weird area within all the realms of creativity as well too i talk about it a lot with sean actually just because he's in television um and it probably is relatable to you as well in music that that for you guys you there's this audience that kind of needs to be there and you can find that audience in in a bunch of different ways and there's different platforms for that and they're collapsing and changing within internet and all that kind of stuff but in the art world it's different like you don't need this giant audience um you really only it doesn't need to be that popular and you need a couple of collectors maybe to buy your work um in order to support you having a career in it or maybe some smart people that are into it that elevate it in an academic way but you don't need it to be this this popular thing so it's it's like a it's a little bit different than your guys's world i think um but it is a it is a, a rarefied world to be in. That's for sure. And would you say New York is 
I mean, I probably know the answer to this, but New York is like a, cent- a center of the visual art world. Yes. And yeah. that, is that a, maybe a reason why you wanted to stay? Yes, that's, that's part of it. I think that if I want to do this for a career, you, you kind of need to have a, a base in New York in, in one way or another. I mean, it can, of course, happen all sorts of different ways with the internet now. Um, and, uh, but for the most part, like, you know, you can be in LA or Berlin or London or some, you know, of the other San Francisco big, or not, uh, there's some artists based in San Francisco that have, yeah. have careers for sure. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the most opportunities, uh, I think it, it, being in New York presents more op- opportunities for artists, I would say. So, okay. So we're jumping around a lot, but mm-hmm. Did getting your MFA, so you got your MFA at NYU? I did, yes. Yeah. How do you think that helped? Well, um, it, it did and it didn't help. It was a, it, it was a great experience for me um, because, I mean, making art is a pretty isolated thing as well, especially not all artists, but for painters, I'm by myself a lot, so I'm not collaborating with people. So going to grad school all of a sudden puts you in a community of people, and then there's a community of ideas, and you have people to bounce your ideas off of and teachers coming in there. So that was like a wonderful thing to all of a sudden have this community uh, around you. And ideally, you're making maybe some connections there as well, too. Um, but there are a lot of criticism, criticisms with the MFA world at this point, just because it's so expensive. And there's so many people going into those programs, and there's so many different programs that it's pretty, it's not sustainable. I think that the stats are that to be a fine artist, uh, you, have, you have a better chance making a career as an actor than you do as a fine artist, statistically. So it's a very very difficult thing to, to do um, props to you then man <laughs> yeah so people have to answer your question people yeah. have problems with grad school because it costs so much money and it doesn't really present a lot of opportunities but as you know artists the stats don't really show what artists are doing out there in the world because they're creative people so they might not end up as artists making a living off their artwork but they will end up in other creative fields using their creativity using some of the tools that they learned throughout their grad programs or whatever as well too um so yeah yeah like this idea that it's a special was it two years or three uh two years yeah yeah where you really could hone in on your technical craft right yes yeah and just allowing yourself the time as well too because as anyone knows who who you know you, even if you don't have have uh, like a full-time job even just having the discipline to make yourself do it all the time is a difficult thing totally. so being in a place where you're you're forced and under pressure and allowing yourself that time um uh yeah is really really helpful i think how many hours a week do you teach now um, I only teach one class, so cool. um, uh, I'm only teaching on Mondays, and that class is almost four hours or something like that. Um, so not not that often. That's um, nice, huh? Yeah, it's <laughs> it's that that's perfect. It's it's enough where I have to you know communicate with people once a week, so I have to I have to hold it together a little bit and be presentable at least every once in a while. Um, so yeah, it's and it allows me to be in here a good amount of the time as well too. Um, but then I, and then I also do freelance jobs here and there as well. So I have to do that. And having an MFA makes it so you're able to, to teach, right? Cause you have the credentials. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you, okay. So let me ask you a question. Do you ever feel like working with younger people, you get like new ideas, like when you're up there or is it, or not really? Yes, totally. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's. 
I, it's, it's two things. It, it feels good because I only really know how to do one thing good in this world, which is make a painting. And I'm pretty, and the only thing that I have any confidence with is like, if, you, if you're a beginner painter, I probably have some directions I can point you towards that will be helpful. Uh-huh. I don't really know how to do anything else. So it feels very good on a selfish level to be like, oh, this is the one thing I know how to do. And I'm helping these people. Right. Um, but then you end up just learning so much from them too. I mean, everyone's background and I'm teaching non-art majors. So some of them are, are getting their doctorates. Some of them are going into finance. It's just kind of all over the place. So their different approaches on how to make a painting are so informative. Um, and uh, so, yeah, yeah, I learn a lot from them. Have you had that experience uh, in the classroom? Because I think you've you've been in the classroom a couple times, right? Yeah, I do music workshops with kids. Yeah. And they turn me on to like new stuff mm-hmm. new rappers new memes all this stuff right but it's interesting because like then a, a month will go past and all that stuff is ancient yeah so right. it's like to have the routine I, I don't do it regularly so i imagine being regularly in the classroom you're constantly refreshed yes theoretically yeah and and i you know it's funny is when you say that i i give them just to get a sense of who they are i give them a little questionnaire the first class oh cool to ask who their what their favorite tv show what their favorite movie is who their favorite artist is musician and all that kind of stuff and yes it changes so quickly who they like and then more and more now i've added what's your favorite app on there as well too because at some point people just started you'd be like what's your favorite movie and they're like movie what like who sees movies anymore who's time for that a television show like it's all about these other things so yeah it think it keeps you updated a little bit as well being around them i can tell you're a cool teacher yeah so cool (laughs) so when you so you worked on sean and i talked about this you worked on a lot of the art for jeff and some aliens Mm -hmm. and you were living in portland for a year is that what you said yeah yeah moved out to portland for a year so that was the only year that i was away from from new york and uh they had the production out there in this big old warehouse um, that we were in. And I was the lead background designer is what they call it on there, um, which means basically everything that's not moving behind the characters is what we were in charge of. Um, and uh, bless Sean for putting me in that position because I have absolutely no training um, or reason to be there. But it seemed to have worked out. <laughs> and so you kind of had to, your style is more realistic. So you kind of, Sean directed you on on the style and yeah, yeah I think it was it was like Sean's style is very loose and kind of uh, messy and he likes things kind of a little wiggly um, in that way but for the show it got cleaned up a little bit so yeah. it was kind of this combination of um, yeah it got a little bit neater I, th- I, th- I think under under me being there and then just all these other professionals uh, taking over what were Sean's creations so it was kind of wild to see them morph into like a real comedy central television show yeah yeah <laughs> how many so what was the total crew on the program I think it was it ranged from about 40 to 50 people wow yeah so it was like a big big old warehouse with all of us in there and like a and then like the administrator people and the bo- all these bosses i don't know their names and everything so you had people working under you yeah and then wow. i had like a team under me as well which was ridiculous because i would often be asking them very fundamental questions about animation right and how to do backgrounds and trying to pretend that i was the boss at the same time um 
but it's good because I mean, Sean and I have known each other for so long and I'm sure you have these creative relationships as well where we just, he doesn't need to communicate with me in as extensive a way as he would with someone else because our frame of reference is so similar because we've been in that art room since high school with each other. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, Sean can be like, okay, we have a new character. Uh, she's the kind of girl that is like kind of gothy, um, but probably goes to punk shows and lives in Santa Cruz. And I'm like, got it. I know exactly what her bedroom looks like right, and what right. we're going for here. And like the conversation doesn't need to be that long. So that's cool. Yeah. I think it made things easier for him in some ways, or at least I, I hope it did. And he trusted that you knew you knew you could give the same frame of reference. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And. Speaking of that, like some of the backgrounds, like you had the, the scene where they got married was like Big Sur. Yeah. Like you. It was definitely Big Sur inspired. That's funny you recognize that. <laughs> I was like, oh, these, yeah, I, I knew that. And, and what, were there any other places specifically inspired by the Central Coast? Um, I think probably like a lot of the nature stuff. I yeah. mean, and we, we kind of didn't, he, they didn't give him an exact town where Jeff from Jeff and some aliens lived, but our reference point were these California places. So it was like, oh, he's this episode with his girlfriend, he's going to propose to her and they'll probably drive up to like the mountains. So it's kind of like a Lake Tahoe sort of situation. Right. Or, or they'll drive, you know, down like the coast to like LA or Santa Monica or something like that. So we had, those were our reference points a lot of the time. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, we're looking at one of your canvases here, which is, you said it's the view from your parents' house? Yes, yeah. They were up on Jack's Peak uh, for a while in Monterey, um, looking down at like the pines and, and the way the fog would roll in there in Pacific Grove in Monterey. And I instantly, I instantly recognized like, oh, I, I know, I know that light. I know that area. Yeah. It's cool. I mean, it's funny. That's kind of like driving to school every morning before the fog is burned off. That was, yeah. that was what was going on in Pebble Beach. It has kind of a, it has kind of a mystical, ethereal quality that when you leave the Central Coast, you don't realize that the water and land doesn't always coexist like that. No. It's a special <laughs> little, little area. And. I wonder how did it feel painting this? Did you feel nostalgic? Did you feel introverted? Or what were some of your feelings? Um, you know, I probably picked it because I wanted to just spend some time looking at nature, which quite often happens for me being here in the city. I do this stupid thing as well. I think I've done it for almost eight years now where I, I put a picture of, of nature on Facebook every single day for, I think it's been eight years or something like that. And um, and recently I was validated because I saw this study that showed that even if you just look at a picture of nature every day, it makes you, gives you a sense of calm and usually indicates that you're a happier person. So I, mm. I think that maybe that was one of the reasons that I was just like, okay, like I've been in New York for probably too many months if I've decided to make this nature painting because I just need to be in this quiet space for a while. So you painted it here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you have this cool juxtaposition where you have like a grid behind it. Mm -hmm. What's the story behind that? Yeah. So the, the grid is kind of shows up in a lot of my paintings and it's an indication to two things. And when one, the process of making them that uh, for a long time, I, I mean, you know, centuries and centuries ago, 
people were using this grid method in order to um, graph things out and measure things correctly, get the perspective correctly and everything. Um, and now, though, it kind of looks like this, like almost like 80s sort of video game graphic-y sort of thing, or mm. when you put a grid in Photoshop or something like that. So, of course, Photoshop is, is, is built off of all these tools in the dark room and that people have been using for centuries or whatever. So, for me, it, it has the, those, those two different things. It's kind of this nod to the, a, a way of looking at nature and the world through technology, but also a nod to like the process of making something and building something up and the history of it as well, too. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. Is, and so it's on top, it's on top, but it's also behind some of it, right? Like it's behind these leaves on the left or mm. my. Yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 And this one, it's, um, it's, yeah, it goes over the top of some of the trees and then some are on top of it. So it kind of runs throughout it in, in this way. So it becomes less flat that way. It becomes more dimensional, I think. So you're kind of looking through the grid to see some of those trees in the background as well, too. So it gives this feeling maybe of, uh, you know, looking through, through a viewfinder or something like that as well. That's cool. Yeah. Um, but it, it's it's also this indication that things are kind of like just about to be moved around. Like they exist in like a Photoshop world or something where you could drag and drop something. Mm. So in a lot of these, in the paintings that we're looking at next to them, there's these other flower paintings that also have this grid in them. And in these flower paintings, there's this, there are actually flowers that are dragged and dropped from other situations um, and look like there. And I want them to feel like they're always in can always be shifted around that even though they're painting and static that the association that we have with them is always kind of shifting and they can be placed like my paintings jump around so like right to the right of that is this marge simpson painting all of a sudden and then behind that is this da vinci rendering so we're jumping around in styles and they kind of their meaning changes by the context that they're in and i think that that grid puts it in this kind of like Photoshop soundstage, like we're arranging the objects into a narrative or into a story, but we, we don't quite know what it is yet. Um, so everything kind That's of cool. feels in flux in a way. So the data we're, we're, we are trying to interpret and find meaning in the data. Yes. Would you, would you call your art postmodern? Is, does that feel kind of like academic and dry oh i mean it it it, it is and now there's this i think that the the term that it falls under is this term called post-internet art um which um um, i'm sure within the art world we've they've moved on from that term because they move on from things so fast it was probably introduced two years ago or something like that but post post post-internet art is this idea that like when you google like a tree or something now that in your google image search like a tree uh that matt groaning rendered shows up like the da vinci rendering shows up the ansel adam picture of a tree the national geographic so there's all these different trees just crammed up right next to each other and there's no hierarchy to them either there's no one being like oh no the fine painting by da vinci is better than the simpsons one or whatever that's that the hierarchy system has fallen apart so that i fall into this category right now of all these different styles being kind of mashed together without hierarchy anymore Mm. Um, so I think that that's, that would be the umbrella that I'm, I'm classified under at this point. And it's interesting when you think about the post-internet culture, mm-hmm. it's very memefied and very quick and very much about creating lots of content constantly. Mm-hmm. And you're obviously prolific, but these paintings, 
take longer than a Drake meme. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, it's a whole different, right? <laughs> yes. It's post internet, but it's also timeless in your technique. And I think that's always what I, when I try to make a song or I'm trying to work on an album, mm-hmm. I'm trying to make something that lasts, that has a lot of yeah. depth. Mm-hmm. And I see that in your art. And I, I love this March Simpson one because it, <sighs> I see that there's, she's walking and there's a pile of hammers and I think, okay, she's like <laughs> continually disappointed in Homer's inability to fix things. And then you have like the stump and you said the background was like inspired by a piece you were doing for the show with Sean, maybe. Yeah. From Jeff and some aliens. Yeah. As a background from there. Yeah. It's very, it's interesting. And it's also familiar. I don't know. And, and it's like, how, so how long did that one take you, the Marge one? Uh, you know, that took me uh, uh, about a, a month or I would say like three weeks, but that was up at a residency that I did in Maine. So I was working every day on it. So I was putting a lot of hours into that guy. Um, but I like that your, your, your kind of narrative that you're starting to create here or your response to it as well, because I guess that the the, the further note to add on after this post-internet idea that my art falls under yeah. is then that my specific interest has, it seems to have been that, that I am trying to, I'm interested in the way that our brains connect disparate ideas to each other and the way that now that when we go through the world that you are pushed up against like, especially in New York, like, you know, all these different cultures and then what you read in the New York Times from something across the world and then this advertisement, then you come up and then your friend's Instagram. And naturally, our brains connect all these things because we understand the world through narrative. So our brain is like, let's let's force this into a narrative. Um, And it can be so random now because we're getting information from everywhere. So I think that my interest in making all these different things is the way that our brains take all that disparate disparate information force them into a narrative and then how that narrative can be two things like one fruitful like you can you can gain knowledge from that and some of those narratives function in the world are, are, are valuable lessons and then some of them though are very misleading it's just a bunch of nonsense that's been thrown together as well too right um which so then that kind of goes with this idea of all of them being in a state of process as well too that everything's shifting around we're, we're continuously trying to figure out what the narrative is and what the most fruitful narrative is for us uh which one we relate to the most and which one the audience relates to the most maybe as well too um, but I'm sure that you can re- relate being in that creative space and, uh, you know, then tr- the way that just ideas come together and which idea you follow and which one you don't. Well, and you were talking about the, the Google image search hierarchy. And I think the post-internet art thing that you mentioned, it's really this um, dismantling of the platonic idea that there is there's a perfect tree. Mm-hmm. No, there right. are a million variations. And yes. they're right here. And I remember when I started drawing... What the advice they used to say was, oh, well, cut, cut things out, cut p- out pictures from magazines of like cars you like and make a folder mm-hmm. and, and have a cars and then a tree folder. And now you don't have to do that. No. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. When did you, so were you always painting when you were a kid or when did you find this passion? I wasn't, I was, I always, I always drew and I always had an interest in, in comics and cartoons and things like that. And my dad uh, was an architect as well too. So he always, he always uh, was drawing and had those tools around and painted a little bit himself. Um, Mm. 
but I never painted um, and was terrified of doing any of it. I mean, it was that that classic thing for some people where you you think you're good at something, but because you think you're good at it, you're terrified to do it because if you do it then you would figure out that maybe you're not good at it and that would be too much to handle so it's funny thinking back to to knowing you in middle school as well too because one thing i really remember was all your comics over the years and that you did comics for the newspaper as well too right yeah you have a good memory yeah (laughs) yeah and i was like and to tell you the truth i was totally jealous of that because you were much freer with your creativity back then or at least from an outside perspective it felt like that that you just went for it and you just put it out there and it ended up in the paper and people knew you for that and everything so i was like oh man andrew's the art guy or sean's the art guy but our renderings were a little were quick and sloppy yes right it's like you were determined to be thoughtful I was, but I I think, you know, this is turning into like a a therapy session because the more I pick this apart, the more I see my ego in all of this as well, too. Uh. And I never painted for a very long time because I I think that it was that thing that I thought I was good at it. But like, if I was going to do it, I better be really good at it and I better be better than everybody else. And it scared me from painting for a very long time. So I didn't paint until until college, until my junior year of college. So I was about 23 or so 22 you, or something Did you have like a major before that? or did um, I Well, I transferred to go to the film school, and then right. I ended up in the art department. That's awesome. Um, yeah, and then eventually, and even there, I was too scared to, to paint, and eventually I, I did it. And, and now you could say that all this rendering that happens here and this learning um, to, to, to do it this way has, has been this big cover-up of me being like, afraid in middle school to share anything Mm. that was maybe messy at that point (laughs) well it's that's interesting man and also that um yeah that some people wait till they're 40 or 50 or older to Mm -hmm. to have that fear like they think oh i'm i'm a i'm a good rapper i'm a good songwriter but but yeah i'm too busy i have to you know the kids need to be driven to soccer practice i'll do it later Mm -hmm. people put it off in their life and that's that's sad you know i think it's like like we talked about earlier it's it's special that there's a cohort of people from our generation that went for it yeah supportive teachers and families and yeah you know yeah it's been fun tracking the people from from our high school over the years as well too i mean i'm still friends with a bunch of people and and you know so many have come through new york city as well too uh, i just saw uh like tessa stewart last week oh yeah who writes for rolling stones in the political section yeah right that's awesome yeah and her her sister Catherine, who was working on the avatar movies in the costuming department who did fashion for a long time stipe yeah alexander wang yeah this is the year below us yeah alexander uh, my brother's class yeah so the year below you yeah yeah and, and got, now he's, he's lady gaga's singing about him right yes yeah he is so big Ex- at this eccentric point. dude um ev- yeah he got kicked out of stevenson twice i believe right was the situation <laughs> um and i've seen him on the streets a couple times did you say hi or not i did yeah i have i've said hi yeah did he recognize you or not he did yes yeah um, um. I guess the first, the first, 
I mean, do people know on your podcast do you like or care who Alexander Wang is? I don't know. That's a very good question. Maybe explain. <laughs> Alexander Wang is like was the hottest fashion person for a very long time. So like right. as you know, he got he got bigger than all those other big fashion houses like Versace and Gucci and all those things. He was like the cool kid for a while and was friends with all the celebrities and all that kind of nonsense or whatever. And everyone um, and and yeah, he was uh, a lot of people would wear his clothes to the Oscars and stuff. Yes, exactly right. that sort 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 of thing. And and within our or, or at least my snooty New York world and the art world and everything like that, I was like, oh, that's a good person to know. So it was weird to go to high school with him and know that he was in that position as well too because it's like right. i was like oh if i can get that guy to buy one of my paintings like my life changes like he instagrams one of my paintings and like i'm like good to go sort of thing right oh so probably when i saw alexander wang on the street i approached with that sort of desperate energy which is not a good energy to approach someone with um <laughs> so how did the conversation go yo i went to high school with you i mean a couple times we just kind of like i think because he lived in the east village for a while we kind of like eyed each other as we walked each other by and i was like i think i know who that pretty boy is and he like you know was kept looking back at me and then one time i, I stopped him and we chatted for a little bit and right. brought up like Catherine went to to school with him at parsons i think it was and everything and he was with his friends and they had walked on so he's like oh sorry i have to leave sort of thing um that's cool though yeah but he's 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 like so big he's one of those people that's like in like a like a three escalades like going off to like a private jet to wherever at this point so right he's he's an alien person within this world <laughs> and i remember he um yeah he was he was always pushing the boundaries of fashion even as a and gender and stuff even as a yeah as a freshman in high school totally it's yeah tight. yeah <laughs> i mean as the way my brother tells it that our at our and that time in high school what 98 97 or something like it still very homophobic still people right. using slurs all the time when talking with each other no one was uh, was out and then all of a sudden this guy shows up who's just like wearing a bra around everywhere and i think he liked me and my brother because my brother brother would like let him sit on his lap and be like a little bit flirty or whatever right at the time um but i was just like i had mad respect because he could draw like a motherfucker too like miss rumbaugh's class like all of a sudden one day i walked in i was like i am not the tightest renderer in here like you and sean could do the cartoon thing and be funny and everything i was like i'm a pretty good render showed up one day i was the loser at that one as well too and it was because of alexander wang and he's younger and he's younger yes yeah. and he's got bigger balls than anyone else on canvas walking around in a bra um <laughs> That's pretty crazy. Yeah. Pretty funny. This is what a funny, uh, this is an interesting anecdote for the podcast. Um, yeah. So I wanted speaking of speaking of delving up the past. There's a story that I didn't know if you knew I was going to bring up, but mm -hmm. something I wanted to apologize for, oh, which no. was in was in middle school. You oh, and I know Tyler where you're Potter. Going. You and Tyler Potter <laughs> both did poems that did not really reference. Trent Reznor, but we're kind of in the style. Oh, that's funny. And uh, I was jealous of y'all because you guys were very much like poignant <laughs> lyricists. So I gave the downward spiral lyrics to Brenda Stockdale, the teacher, <laughs> and you both got in trouble. And I shouldn't have done that. Uh, right? Do you remember the story? I totally remember And I'm sorry, Jason. I was, I was almost going to bring this up as well, too. Good, good. I thought about it the other day. Yeah. Um, but I forgot that Tyler had also written a poem that was probably kind of Nine Inch Nails oriented as well. His we were, was more like, I'm, I am, he said, I'm Mr. Self-Destruct in his. Uh, I think that was maybe me. Okay. Yeah. And then he, I forgot what Tyler's was at this. I'm still close with Tyler as well. Because I, I saw too. both of y'all, you were going to see Star Wars a few years ago. That's oh, the last that's time I saw right. you. Yeah. Monterey. Uh, 
Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, okay. Anyway. Yes, I remember this. I remember the story, but it's funny that you feel guilty about it because that I think has been a valuable lesson for me over the years. Um, because when I wrote that poem, it was. I mean, that poem was so much like that first song off of the Downward Spiral, I, where he just kind of lists things over again. Mr. Self Destruct. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And it was followed that structure like completely. And I didn't like that song at the time so i would never listen to it right. so when you were like oh it's based on this thing i was like and tyler backed me up tyler was like no i know chase and we talk about this all the time he like he doesn't like that song so you, had, wait, you hadn't heard the song uh, no i had heard it but it's true that i skipped it so in my brain i was like i couldn't be plagiarizing this song i don't even like it i don't even right. listen to it right when i look back at that I clearly was plagiarizing that song. <laughs> so you should not feel guilty about that. You were, you were, you were right to blow the whistle. <laughs> well, here's what, what had happened was I was in this poetry competition and someone had turned in the lyrics to Rage Against the Machine's Wake Up mm. and they won. <laughs> but he or she didn't show up. Oh my for, God. Or they didn't show up for the award. So I told, I was like, I recognize this. So I got, so they had the award taken away. So I was on this whole save the 90s alt metal. Yeah. Nice like, kick, but I remember. So here's how I realized that it was influential on you. I was we were hanging out at your apartment drawing, mm -hmm. and you showed me your essay mm -hmm. where you referenced it, your admissions essay. Oh, really? Where you were like, I don't even remember and this. <laughs> Andrew Andrew Nielsen, why did you why did you turn me in? This is um, this is art. I'm I'm allowed to reference things, but it wasn't theft. Do you not remember this? I do not remember. It was this. an essay that you had written about this moment for college. I think for college or maybe for high school. Oh, good Lord. So I stayed defensive about that for a while, huh? <laughs> Do you not remember this? That was when I realized that, oh man, I shouldn't have blown the whistle. Oh no, you definitely should have. Because the, so the lesson part of this yeah. for me was one, just the, the kind of like hoops that we jump through with ourselves in order to lie to ourselves about things. Right. So like at that time, I fully and apparently for years afterwards was like, no way that I referenced nine inch nails at all in this thing there's i that i am telling the truth here i am a hundred percent certain about it at no point in my psyche was i like oh i did this thing at, ever i thought it was a, a hundred percent felt like i did not do this thing but now years later i'm like clearly it influenced me in one way or another even if it wasn't exactly the same i was 100 percent right. thinking about that song and yeah it's just been a great lesson in terms of like the gymnastics we go through in order to be defensive and protect our own egos so constantly now in my life right. i kind of do that i'm just like with people i'm like interesting they 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 are giving me a criticism this is a person i don't think we were great friends or anything at that time but i, I clearly knew you as a nice person there's no there is no you were doing this in good faith let's let's put it that way Ugh, so like when yeah. someone is so when someone especially like a partner or a family member is coming to you cares about you who is giving you criticism of yourself uh -huh. don't do that thing where you're like come up with a defense of it like listen to what they're they're saying because you will go to great lengths in order to protect yourself or at least i do that with it's a it's a negative aspect of my personality <laughs> that i've come to terms with over the years it's interesting yeah and it's also interesting though because in the post-internet age mm -hmm. fair use could be a reference to that album it could be you know referential art is i don't know i mean i don't i don't know i think that like yeah. poetry especially there's a there's an academic 
quality to where you can like if you can reference specific things t.s Eliot, the, the, the wasteland is just ref full of references right? right yeah so yeah i don't know i learned that you don't need to be i learned we both <laughs> learned something i don't learn that you don't need to be concerned about your peers uh academic development <laughs> right that's like snooty well i think that there's a there's a right and there's a wrong way to do it i, I would say okay. and and i i mean well at, at least in my world so like if i i have no problem with writing a poem like that or or in all these paintings like there's there's uh flowers straight from disney there's flowers straight from da vinci you know as long as you are putting that reference out there you're not pretend you're not winning poetry contests on somebody else's words or something mm. like that and especially you're not profiting off of somebody else's work where maybe they're not profiting off of it as well. Yeah. Um, and I think within, within the art world, there's a lot of different artists that kind of deal with this appropriation stuff as well. There was this big movement of the picture generation in the 80s and then all these appropriation artists as well too, that now their careers are almost about these like legal battles of what is safe to steal and what is not safe to steal and where someone's idea is there their idea and becomes a new idea um, and where that line is and it seems like it's a constant flux within society of, of what you can do and what's acceptable from your peer group as well too oh, man and then people like Duchamp making it like uh, so much about like the, the, the Mona Lisa one it's like mm -hmm. if it's funny you kind of get away with it, yeah. right? Or if it's if it's fair use because it's so old. Yeah, yeah. They're, what, they're, tell me about the picture artist stuff. I don't know much about that. Well, I mean, I guess that the best, the most interesting one for people to hear about is this guy, Richard Prince, who maybe people know. He's He got famous in the 80s for reappropriating the Marlboro um, uh, Cowboys, and he would just do take pictures of those billboards and sell them as his art. Um, okay. But he's done other things, like where he's, uh, he's taking the catcher and the rye and he's reprinted it exactly as it is, but then just signed his name at the end of it and sold it outside of the Met, like in front of the Met, like as his own. Right. Um, and then one of the more famous ones that he did back in the day was, I don't know if you remember this picture of Brooke Shields, who was a big actress mm -hmm. um, back in the 90s or whatever, and she started as a child star. And at some point this, for a fashion magazine, her parents somehow allowed her to be photographed when she was like, 13 like nude in this bathroom with like this weird fixture and because it was in this fashion magazine like no one really said too much about it right. so richard prince appropriated that work he put it in a bowery space like back in the 80s when it was like a hellhole down there um, where you had to walk through this dark desolate room in order to get to this weird picture of her and it changed the context of once he appropriated it didn't change the picture at all but just by putting it into a different environment it was like this is some creepy shit like why is this even allowed sort so of just kind of hung the picture yeah hung the picture in that space but because you had to walk by all the people on drugs and through this creepy old building or whatever it made you view it in a different way than flipping through a glossy fashion magazine or something like that so he's he has this idea this this appropriation ideas once you appropriate it and change the context then it's a, a different thing um and he keeps playing with that so his most recent stuff is he will comment on somebody's instagram picture so it'll be like it'll be someone famous like kendall jenner or something like that and he'll just co comment like kiss kiss heart heart rich prints or something like that under it make a big blow up of it and then sell it at an art fair like for a hundred thousand dollars or something like that i think that's i think that's pretty genius yeah it is because <laughs> what you're doing is playing with the context of capitalism and consumption and and um 
I don't know, identity, really. Yeah. I, and if anyone can, that's what hip hop is always about. This comes out a lot on the podcast is like mm-hmm. this idea of circumlocution. You speak around and you reference something. So like you, by hmm. scratching, you're taking, you're literally, you're taking the words spun around and scratching to say something new huh. and you're giving it a new context. And yeah. The medium is the message like that mm-hmm. like that famous quote that that becomes something different and so if you can get people excited about it it's not so interesting what you did technically mm-hmm. it's how you create this content within the so- society that consumes ideas yes but yeah i could see how someone who like let's say you were if someone were to instagram your marge simpson mm-hmm. and he wrote kiss kiss and he made a hundred grand off <laughs> print of your print i would I, if i were you i would be upset yeah you know? yeah and i mean i think that that's that's kind of the thing and you see it in politics or whatever as well too is like you're not allowed to punch down uh you're only allowed to punch up for the most part that's so like point. so like if richard prince made a hundred thousand dollars off of me like people be pissed off probably they would be like you can't take a young artist work who's not making you know his own money and do that but if he's making it off of like kendall jenner or something like that like no one cares uh that's a good distinction yeah so i I think that that's that's part of it as well too and it's and and it's funny because there's 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 that part of is when the idea changes you appropriate something and the idea changes um but then there's other artists that will play with other copyright laws that are like there's this guy tom Sachs who he he figured out that hello kitty's copyright on hello kitty was like only up to 10 feet so if you built a hello kitty that was or maybe it was more 30 feet or something like that if you built a hello kitty that was above 30 feet right then they no longer had copyright over Interesting. it so he pushed the copyright in that way as well too um and of course all these things of like appropriating uh, uh um culture is, goes back to this warholian idea of sure. taking celebrities and, and and photographing their pictures and putting them out there as well and i guess i'll note on this podcast i'll, I'll argue for the art world in in some way because uh-huh. i think that in a lot of ways it's it's snooty and should be made fun of and should be knocked down every chance we get to knock it down because of how snooty it is. But if anything, it, it, it is this group of people that are kind of on the forefront of some of these ideas. So if you look back at Warhol or Richard Prince or something like that, Richard Prince is like way beyond, he was doing what's happening in copyright law 20, 30 years ago or something like that. Warhol was way before all this celebrity stuff that was going on in our culture and predicting it. And it, it allows this like space for people to explore these ideas um, before that they hit culture a lot of the time. But I mean, that's not just the fine art world. That's any sort of art form, I think, as well. But So he predicted the peregrinations of culture. That's a phrase we talk about on this podcast. The shifting and moving of culture. Mm-hmm. So the idea that Elvis can transcend Elvis and become a million prints of him or Marilyn Monroe becomes the art becomes the fact that she's replicated a million times. Mm-hmm. And then that in- in- interestingly predicted the internet right that you can make a million copies and yeah you don't own you don't own your own you can't own yourself once you're like a celebrity yeah yeah everyone owns you yeah it's funny there's i mean there's kind of all ways that you can pick apart warhol that that being a a great one and then the whole line of like everyone is famous for 15 minutes or whatever which is more and more true with you know having social media and our little moments 
out there in society and also that just celebrity translates to money as well too that you get enough followers and you get enough attention you can that's that goes straight into money and warhol was basically like oh you know uh, liz taylor is this famous all i have to do is print a picture of her and it, it translates directly into money yeah um, yeah that's true with like youtube if you do the if you do a reaction video to the right video that's that's art that people care about yeah. they want to know what this person thinks about this yeah whatever. and yeah and kind of uh building off of the attention that's paid to somebody else as well so the real commodity kind mm -hmm. of like going back to what we're talking about is time mm -hmm. because these these canvases take time building your brand takes time talking yeah. on a old colleague's podcast <laughs> takes time so it's like do you ever do you ever worry that there won't be enough time to do everything you want? Um, you know, that's a good question. Uh, one that I haven't thought about for a while, but now that you're asking it, I don't have that stress anymore. I think that for a long time I did have that stress and now I don't care as much. And I, I kind of thought that like, I, 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 should, I should try to make a movie at some point. I should try to take pictures more and all this kind of stuff. And I'm, I think I'm letting, at least for the last few years, I've let go of that urgency and just been okay with the slowness of painting and kind of look to that as a strength of it as well, too. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that'll stay the same. Maybe I'll get neurotic and crazy about it again. But for right now, it feels okay. What inspired that shift? That's cool. Um, I don't know. Maybe just getting older. If I take it from a biological perspective, I think the testosterone is running out of my body a little bit. <laughs> and testosterone is a hell of a thing for me. <laughs> Most guys, I guess, or yeah. anyone who's taking testosterone at this point, uh, it makes you crazy. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm a much happier and calmer person now that just that chemical is not in me as much anymore. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> um, but also just coming to, to terms with like, I've spent so much time in this. I have friends, um, you know, like you that make music and friends that make, has made television shows and friends that have made movies and the amount of practice and time that goes into doing that thing well is like crazy. Um, so I don't have this this urge to jump around as much as what, what I used to. Mm -hmm. um, and then I just know paintings take a long time and I, I probably make too much of them anyways right now, even though I make maybe 12 a year, like we should cut this down sort, sort, sort of thing, even though that's not very yeah, fin financially not very reasonable, <laughs> but um, it would be better if I made less paintings to tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> because why? Because the ones you do make then go up in value? I just, you know, I have a lot of bad ideas. And uh, I think that, well, I are not, I mean, it, it's more that it's editing out the bad ideas and knowing when to edit out the bad ideas as well, too. Um, and because I want them to be around for a while and I don't want them to be consumed quickly, I think that I shouldn't put them out so quick. So it's like mm. a special thing once someone gets one or once I decide one's finished or whatever. But maybe that's snobby of me too. There's also a snobby part of that. <laughs> um, yeah, I hear what you're saying. And I think going back to like one of the things we talked about at the beginning of this interview is that you were saying how you know, with Sean and people are trying to be musicians and mm -hmm. have streaming content you pay your rent if X amount of people listen to your stuff or watch your movies. Right, yeah. As a fine artist, collectors, one collector falling in love with your work helps. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to cast your net as widely. Yeah. Which I think might, I wonder, like, it's a different kind of, 
end end goal, but the real but the real the real thing is about enjoying the process. Yeah, and totally. I, th- I think what you talked about, like not stressing out. I've had like a similar focus where like mm-hmm. my goal is I used to want to make a million YouTube videos and do a million comics, and now mm-hmm. it's like if I can do a few comics and do an album a year. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's enough. Yeah, and that's that, a lot of stuff. <laughs> that's, still, that's still a lot of content. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm not worried about it as much. And so, mm-hmm. on a marketing level, do you put much of your brain into thinking about like, oh, well, this will be a certain person will be attracted to this array of flowers, or are you more thinking like, this is what I want to do, and we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, it's I think it's kind of impossible to divorce yourself from that completely yeah i mean i mean it's it's funny it's 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 an argument that i have with creative people and have uh, yeah i had at grad school with a lot of people as well too is like whether you should be the kind of maker that isolates yourself in a cave and just suit makes work suiting your own interests or whatever or whether you should think about the audience and how it's going to relate to people um and uh so I, for, for, for me, uh, I know that if I ever try to make something that I think will just sell or people will like, that it usually turns out pretty bad to tell you, <laughs> tell you the truth when I look back on it yeah. or I'm a little embarrassed about it. It has to be personal in some way. Um, That's great. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I relate to it. And I think when I, like if I've tried to talk about something topical, like I did a Game of Thrones song, which was the lead single on and like two albums ago, mm-hmm. and, and I like Game of Thrones, but I, because it was so popular, yeah. But you know, it sh- I probably shouldn't have made that the lead single because there was so much Game of Thrones content in 2015, mm-hmm. and and I realized it was because I was trying to chase that what I thought was popular, yeah. And it didn't ring as authentically as something about like my life, yeah. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. And so yeah, so it's it's a it's a constant battle and it's something i think good artists have to like shut off temporarily yeah like i think so too yeah it's and it's a difficult thing to navigate because i I have a very similar i mean yeah i i think that i will there's trends that happen within the art world as well too and you can see by what the galleries are showing what kind of art what the trend is and i think that you know when artists see that there's a trend out there um for a while it was abstract uh works um so people were making much more abstract sort of artwork and then it became figurative and cartoony so people made that more often and i see myself you know falling into that so but part of it is just like that's also what people are talking about in society and you're part of the conversation and you want to make artwork of your time and when you're living so you want to be a part of that conversation as well too so it's it's tricky to navigate right right and and especially in a city like new york where popular culture is you get on the subway you see the billboards you listen yeah. to someone's on the phone they're playing some like a new single you know? yeah mm-hmm. and so the trick is then the best artists kind of the best art, best, I say that in quotes, that end up like canonized are the ones that that accidentally stumble upon what becomes like a part of the zeitgeist, like Kurt Cobain or something. Mm-hmm, but it's right. maybe a little t- tragic sometimes or, or accidental. Yeah, yeah. You know? And this, this was actually a question I, I had for you was in the music industry, how you've seen it shift. Because in the art world, of course, like you look back to some of the the like great American painters that have been triumphed to, to this point, like, uh, you know, Jackson Pollock and uh, 
um, you know, all those abstract. Hopper, uh, is he celebrated? Uh, Hopper celebrated as well too. But I know a few. So <laughs> uh, I'm ta- I'm talking about uh, more this kind of like '60s canon of of artist or whatever. Yeah. But but more the the point of the, bringing this up is that at that point when all those artists were together in New York City, there was no internet, there was no press for them, no one cared about them at all. It was just a group of artists that were friends that created their own scene, created their own uh, grouping of ideas. No one knew about their artwork and now it sells for millions and millions of dollars, but they kind of were able to develop it in this cocoon for a while just among themselves. And ideally, I think that that's how it it works in this more organic way where it's just a bunch of people with shared interests coming together, making things. And then like you were referencing with um, Nirvana or whatever, then like out of those group of people, like maybe one of them becomes really popular and, and falls into the zeitgeist of society. But now it seems like in the art world, like the communities because of the internet are don't exist in real life anymore. And they certainly don't exist in a place where the work develops over 10 years and then we we see it in culture like sure, it just gets picked up on right away sort of thing um and i'm sure i mean i know that happens in the m- music industry at this point as well i think i think it used to be a a, a, a uh if you worked for a and r or worked in the label side of things a band would try to sound like whatever was on the radio mm-hmm. so that means whatever is new is already a few years dated it was yeah. all about following trends to try to like get enough money to pay for the creation of an album and pay for the promotion because yeah. you had to please those people at MTV who were the gatekeepers. Right. And then exactly. there was this sudden shift where if something was weird, I think Odd Future were on the forefront of this, something was mm-hmm. weird and aesthetically unique and unified and collectives, that then became, you know, they were doing their own thing without the corporate structure, but then that yeah. stuff got invested in. Yes, and yeah. Think, <laughs> and, that, and that is, the, I think now it's just like, you know, if you get on the right playlist with music, you're good. Uh-huh. And, but Interesting. It's, it's it's wild, man. I think if you're unique enough and you're doing it for real, that's what I try to tell young artists. And I know a lot of like young content creators listen to this podcast. Mm-hmm. So my advice is always just like be fearless and be original. And, you know, if you can figure out how to pay the rent and pay for food, you're good. Yeah. That's all you need. Well, that's a total feat at this point, right? <laughs> yeah. If you, can, if you can get to that point. That's what everyone's striving for. Yeah. I mean, that would be, that's like an unattainable goal for me. If I can just make paintings and like live my life, like that would be amazing. <laughs> but um, can we talk about your latest show, um, yes. Hell for Rainbows? Yes. I, I called it a Hell for Rainbows is what I called that one. <laughs> what inspired that title? Um, well, I guess that the last show, uh, also had rainbows in it and it was called a spectrum in retrospect. And I guess that this part of the idea behind that was this, like the way that we take in a bunch of jumbled information and how it feels cohesive, um, once you look back at it, but in the moment it's, it's kind of all over the place and, and frantic. Um, so it was like a very kind of positive show for me. I was, I was like in a, a, a good headspace and it was just like a, a positive message almost when I looked at that show. Of course, no one else would look at that show and, and think this, but on, that's what I was thinking. So the next one, I wanted to be a little bit darker and I made these rainbow paintings and one with this like fiery red background. And I was like, oh, look, I made a little hell for this rainbow oh, to right. live in. And then I just thought it was a good conceit, like a hell for rainbows. What exactly would be a hell for a rainbow? Yeah. And making a painting of it, 
uh, because a rainbow is an uh, ephemeral thing, you know, it's there and then it's gone. So making it permanent would be maybe hellish for uh, the rainbow. And then I was painting these rainbows that were the little plastic birthday balloon rainbows as well, too. So yeah. it's like not only is it is it uh, a rainbow that's there forever, but it's this like plastic rainbow that's like destroying the environment <laughs> at the same time. Right. Um, and then I was also forcing them into one spectrum as well, too. So that rainbow is existing in this kind of all red atmosphere so it didn't it, it 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 didn't go through the full spectrum of colors it was forced into just one one color yes palette or whatever that's cool so that was the that was the why the name was there <laughs> that's pretty cool yeah so it's a concept conceptual that also applied to like your understanding of the technique of color and science and mm -hmm. that's cool that's very unique i mean it's it's funny because there's like there's there's those there's these two things that i've talked about about my artwork which is the only thing that you should ever listen to me about which is like it's post-internet and then it's about the disparate information and how we connect it and then i have all these other nonsense ideas that underlie everything else and i love talking about them and i right. love going on about them but it never really adds up um <laughs> and like a good i think a a, a, one way I think of this is like I went to grad school grad school is ridiculous for artists I don't know if you know this it's not like there's no painters there there was no one teaching me how to paint it was all theory all the time right. so we were like taking classes on like Hegel or something like that we were reading like feminology of the spirit like these very very heady philosophers and like I don't you're supposed to apply this to your art in some way I don't really know mm -hmm. um but you come out of that situation and you're like, oh, I want to be a smart person. Like, I'm going to explain my art through all this theory, basically. Right, right. And I had these, like, studio visits with people where they'd come over and I'd be like, don't you see? Marge Simpsons connects to the flowers, which connects to the bust, which connected. And they're just like, I feel like I'm a, like a mad conspiracy theory person that's like has yarn strings connecting things. Like I'm a serial killer in here, like <laughs> totally in his own world or whatever. Right. But in my mind, I was like, no, all the ideas make sense. And all these theories that I'm applying to it and these smart people, cause I'm a smart person or whatever. And then I would turn the lights off after that studio visit. And there was this moment where there was this like warm light coming in from outside and this cool light from inside. And there's on the buildings in the financial district, there's these reliefs of, busts and I paint busts as well okay and then I looked at one of my paintings and one of my paintings has this warm light coming from one side and this cool light coming from the other side and it's of a bust and I've just gone through this whole thing of like this is why I make this artwork is because of these this very intellectual pursuit or whatever right and it's like no it was just the thing that was outside your window and you didn't realize it this whole time um and it just oh it was it was like so subconsciously influencing you yeah it was just there that's and it, awesome and, and 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 I mean and and it's just like you don't really you have some control over these things and and you know but it feels like you don't really a lot of the time I don't know if you feel that way in your creative process that there's all these ideas but when you look back at it you're just like oh like this is this is just kind of a manifestation of my life and my experiences through whatever I was interested in at the time instead of like an idea <laughs> yeah i think that's interesting i think that my songwriting you know talking about like we talked earlier about f your audience right mm -hmm. i have this this dichotomy now where it's myself is either really personal about like what it's like to be a dude in his 30s mm -hmm. or i love doing the literary rap because right. that's yeah. timeless mm -hmm. in a way that's like so I used to want to do more pop culture parody stuff. I still do that a little bit, mm -hmm. but I try to, you know, it's like, it's hard to, uh, 
approximate like your influences in a way that feels genuine. So now going back, I just try to like talk about stuff that I'm thinking about or like boring stuff. That, yeah. That if it sounds good, it's cool. Yeah. You know, like this, this, this is like potentially, I don't know. Hip hop is so young and mm-hmm. so energetic and so anarchic. And so it's like, I often ask myself, where do I fit in, in all that? And I'm like, Oh, well I fit in cause I love the energy of the music. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because it's like, it, I guess another way of looking at it, and it's a conversation that I have with our friend Sean as well, too, and something that he points out is that it's it's mostly the, just the time and energy that you put into something. Like, a lot of the time, if he's developing a television show, you're like, oh, Sean, what's it about? And that's what everyone concentrates about. And whether yeah. it's about a guy that's friends with aliens or a person that, you know, lives in Santa Cruz with their parents or something like that, it's not really about that idea. It's more how you develop that idea um and the time that you you put into it um so i I guess that that kind of marries with what i was talking about a little bit that there's like the idea but then there's just how you make things and if you spend time on something it's like it's the time put into it but i'm again saying this as a painter who spends hours and hours on one object and not uh, in the field that you guys are in (laughs) but it's similar too because it's trusting in the process and you know, and have you ever seen the Robert Crumb movie that David Lynch produced? Yes. Crumb. You know, at the beginning, he's drawing, and they say, "Robert, what's your work about?" And he goes, he "Goes, he goes, Jesus, I don't know. I just, I draw. I have to have the courage, and I ask myself, what's coming out of this? Sometimes huh. I don't know. Huh? And and that's what I guess has gotten him into some trouble with his, <laughs> yeah, with how he people, the comic culture wants to cancel him. Oh but, yeah, huh? I could see that. I didn't know about this, but that makes whole, sense. This whole movement, point. especially people who, yeah, it's I don't know, I. Anyway, but he's, he's funny because he's crossed over into the art world. You know, he, he, yeah. he's, uh, he shows at this, the, one of the second biggest gallery in the world. It's called Zwarner, David Zwarner gallery. And they sell his original drawings for lots Jeez. and lots of money. And uh, people love him and he gets yeah. reviewed by the New York times and all the snooty places, you know, so <laughs> because he's, he's <laughs> counterculture. Yeah. And now it's counterculture because the culture is a cancel culture. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's crazy maybe true yeah and i mean but that's i mean it's an interesting thing that you you bring up and i guess that part of my argument for the art world again or what makes it unique is that i think we do have a little bit more space to be not as safe with our ideas um, mm-hmm. because they don't have to function within the market in the same way that someone who's making content for a larger audience does. Um, so they're allowed to be a little bit messier and crazier, and sure. we're allowed to be a little bit more like mad scientists in here nice. um, yeah. and, and push borders in a way that, that – um, because, yeah, we make a thing, and it, it doesn't have to sell to a bunch of people. It just has to sell to a few people. It's uh, like – I don't know if you knew about, well, you probably know about this. The Wu-Tang did that one record and they sold one for a million dollars. Yeah. And then Martin Shkreli bought it. Yeah. And so, but it's like, that's pretty smart. That's that's the model you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It totally fell on the, on the art world model right there. And it's funny, you know, it's funny to see like hip hop come into the art world over Uh the years because like Jay-Z did his whole thing where he, he rapped in the gallery and all that. And of course, Kanye's buys a lot of artwork and talks about it or whatever, Uh because it's like, it's this like, once you're a rich person, like you, 
like it's not about what cars you have like forget like a hundred thousand dollar bugatti or whatever it right. is you know do you have like the 20 million jeff coons sort do of thing do you have a chase in mathems <laughs> <laughs> hanging in your living room that would just be embarrassing that would be like finding out the rapper has like a fake chain or something like that <laughs> no but you're right it's status there's that there's that great calvin and hobbs cartoon you probably know the one i'm referring to where he's talking about oh look a painting of a comic strip high art a, dr- a, a drawing and then it's like oh look a drawing of the painting low art yes. oh look a painting of the drawing of the painting high art yeah and it's a distinction of you i think about this in, in hip-hop it's very interesting talking about the cultural history of it mm-hmm. that distinction of what is yeah high art versus low art and yeah is it what you sample mm-hmm. is it the, the the race of the people who make it the people who buy it is it the class yeah and that's oh man some murky stuff it is totally murky and yeah. i mean with within the art world and it's it is there is a giant hierarchy here and it tries to present itself as the snootiest of all snooty things because it has to in order to sell 20 million dollar 30 million dollar 100 million dollar whatever um at this point it needs to be that that snooty so there is this insane hierarchy in in the place and it's like it's disgusting and gross and cancels out a lot of people and raises up you know old ideas and shuts out new ones and all this stuff it's it's bad but now let me argue for it a little little bit yeah. as, as well too i think that um it's it's funny in order to make it in the in the contemporary art world there you, you kind of have to have like a, a few different factors in play um and they can be of varying degrees. Like you could just be like a cool, popular person. Like you're a cool, popular person. You hang out with the rich people. You hang out with the celebrities. Like people will buy your art if you're just popular. You're popular, super popular on Instagram, whatever. Even if it's just like a, a smiley face on a canvas. People get away with it. Sure, right. <laughs> people definitely get away with it. Um, but that's, so that's one part of it. Um, uh, but that, then it has to sell as well too. It, it, it can't, it can't, it can't, someone has to buy it at some point but then there's this other kind of like intellectual part of it like it has to mm-hmm. be reviewed well it has to the, the the smart people have to write about it it has to end up in the right magazines and then it has to end up in the right um uh, museums as well too like if a museum of a if, you, if you're a, a mid-career artist and like the whitney buys one of your paintings like you can raise the prices of your painting because all of a sudden this institution has bought one of your paintings um so the, all these three things have to be in place. But to, to get to my point of why maybe the snootiness is, is a good thing is that it does, it gets rid of like the smiley face ones, even though there are some smiley faces in the sure. museum or whatever. It gets rid of kind of the nonsense ones. And there is this thing where it's like, this is an important object. Culturally, it's important. Uh-huh. This object that we're putting into a fancy museum with big doors and guards in front of it represents an important shift in culture. And that can be a stylistic shift, but it can also represent a shift in ideas in the culture as well, too. So it's like an important artifact to keep around that embodies all these things. And you kind of need like a, a, a system and a museum to like protect those, sure. those things. It's like those the literary ideas. canon yeah. in a way. Yeah, exactly. So what are the three things it has? So you're saying, so let me see if I remember this right. You have to be popular person. You know, you're, that, that, that could helps. be one way in. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So either you're a popular person, you, the second it. If they just sell. If, if they, they sell. Yeah. And, and then the idea has to be unique. Yeah. It has to be there. It, it, well, it, basically smart people have to like it. It okay. has to be, it, it has to be relevant within culture in some way. So, so this brings me to 
I have two more questions for you. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate your time. Do you think it's ever too late for someone to want to be an artist and want to get an MFA? Or do you think that, you know what I mean? Or mm-hmm. do you think that really you have to be a young kid or a young person f- to ever to, to, to become part of the canonized artist? Or do you think it's ever too late to do it, you know? No, I, I, I do not think so. I, I think that, um, I mean, I went to the M, in the MFA program. We had plenty, I think we had 40-year-old, 50-year-old, maybe even higher. At Are you some serious? Point that they accept in. Yeah, they try to accept older people every once in a while, too. But a lot of the time, people will just shift careers as well, mm-hmm. too, and decide to be an artist. And it's this thing, like I'm saying, you don't need an audience and because it doesn't rely on on that big audience and selling it, which is, you know, most of the time people make money off of youthful things and that youthful sort of energy right. um, in order to do it. But with art, you don't really need to do that quite as much. It helps to be cool and hip and young and all that sort of stuff. Right. But there's a lot of examples of people shifting careers and becoming artists later on. Wow. Um, but that being said, like I said, it's harder to be a, a, an artist, make a living being an artist than being an actor. Um, and we know how hard it is to be a famous actor or right. actress. So it's right. like, it's not an easy thing to do. Like my, like you, you're very positive when it comes to this. When right. like my students are like, I want to, I love making paintings. Like I want to, I want to transfer into the art program. I'm like, no, do not do that. Whatever you do, do not. Like if you want to be an artist out there, a fine artist, don't do it. It's a terrible world. <laughs> don't get <laughs> Don't get into it. It's defeat. But if you have to, if there's no other option right. for you, then yeah, you should. What that's else dope. are you going to do with your life? Like, <laughs> do it. Yeah, and that's interesting, Jason, because a lot of the kids I went to college with, well, I have one friend who's a peer who ended up going into music professionally mm-hmm. and doing well, but everyone else would play the coffee house and then they're now like yeah. this one dude was a DJ he, start, he started Instagram mm-hmm. you know what I mean or yeah. like I have a friend who's launched who created Patreon mm-hmm. like all they all went into things tangential to art but that then f- helped feed their passion and their and their um, technique yeah which was cool and so it's like this interesting question of like the last thing I want to talk about on this interview is how do you then have the discipline to build your technique without the aid of having had like a billion dollar app or something that like, <laughs> that, you know, like some of your students might be doing on the side, right? Mm-hmm. How do you, what is your process? When, like, how do you make sure you put enough time and how do you stay disciplined in this, in this pursuit? It's very difficult. And uh, I, for me, it's just, I am, I, th- I think I'm a very routine oriented person. And that helps me a lot, especially with, and it's probably why I make the kind of artwork that I make that's very time consuming and takes days and days and days and months and months to make one painting sometimes. Um, the, that, that, that sort of like wanting that routine in your life. Um, but I've had to set up many different sort of like like treats along the path to get me into that sort of disciplined mode of doing it. Okay. And I know that early on, like especially after school, like even just knowing that a friend is going to stop by for a studio visit or something like that and knowing like, Oh, like I've told this person they're going to show up here. It's embarrassing if I don't have something to show them at this point. So it's going to make me produce something that that way. Right. Um, so that's really helpful is like getting other people that you're in conversation with. 
Um, I think that it's like a community. Yeah. A community is helpful, especially in an isolated pursuit, like being in your studio as as well too. I think having studio visits like, like this is really nice. I'm calling this a studio visit. (laughs) This is a podcast for you, Yeah, but it's very similar that, that you told me that you really enjoy these conversations because it puts you down with someone for an hour or whatever it is. And I think that artists have the same thing where, where we, there's this structure here where I just go to some random person's studio. I don't really know. And we sit there and, talk about ideas for an hour or two or whatever um and that's just really energizing as, as well too yeah 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 um but i don't think i answered your question no, did i about uh, so, discipline so yeah no stuff. it's about accountability so your accountability accountable to a community mm-hmm. which helps you create do you yeah sometimes when i'm working on a song or I, I do two songs a month on patreon you know and those are often I'll, I'll just be like, all right, so it's the end of the month and I have my two songs I need to put out. You know, yeah. I'm still working on them. But I, I sit down and I set my stopwatch. Mm-hmm. And I just write and listen to the beat and I have to do that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it doesn't get done. Yeah. So do you like set a, do you like, do you set like a stopwatch or do you just come in here and be like, okay, I'm not leaving till I finish this portion of this canvas or yeah i mean it's 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 difficult i mean i have a little bit of a timeline of when i want to finish paintings by but i think i'm just kind of a guilty person so i feel guilty a lot of the time if i'm not doing it and and part of it's like oh i'm paying for this studio i went to grad school like (laughs) you you need to get down there and and do it but i mean I think I'm lucky. I have I have a genuine love of the process. I love being down here. I get so much meaning out of it, and I'm also feel like an addict most of my life. I am a like a, I want to be in a state of flow at all times, um, and I'm chasing that on a daily level. And when I say that I'm a routine, disciplined person, it's like I wake up. I want to go for a run mm-hmm. and I want to be get that runner's high sort of thing. I want yeah. to be in that flow state with running. I'll do that and now I'll come home and I'll want to meditate for a little while and get everything out and sit there for a little bit and then I'll get down here and paint for a little while and I'm chasing this kind of like being within a flow state situation. Yeah. So a lot of the, you ask about like the discipline thing or whatever and it's basically like I've just made myself into an addict at this point. Like I just love, it, it gives me meaning and I love doing it and I turn into a nasty person when i don't have it as well too Uh, i get like it's like when people get hangry or whatever it's like if i haven't painted for a while like even if i'm on vacation you get heart gree yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) exactly i'm just like i haven't been in that flow state i'm gonna bite your head off it's like we we keep hanging out and i don't get that um so yeah i think that maybe i'm I'm, maybe i'm i'm lucky that that way i don't know but it's also the monkey on your back yeah it's you need to do it yeah I, I i also like whipping myself a little bit too so yeah. it's, it's the same thing i'm like i want to get out there and 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 run and feel that pain and then have it transition into pleasure a little bit as well too hey that's good i'm not, I'm not religious in any way but a lot of the time i feel just like a good protestant boy sort of thing <laughs> <laughs> do you i mean for yeah. yourself are you i mean i i must assume that when you're performing and stuff you kind of fall into like a flow state sort of situation yeah. as well you know touring is exhausting because it's so much time in the van or the airport Mm -hmm. yeah and i often think about how much easier my life would be if i just decided to go into investment banking or got an mba (laughs) and just did marketing for spotify or you know what i mean something tangential yeah but i couldn't sacrifice my time like that Mm -hmm. but it would be easier i wish sometimes i wish 
that I didn't have this, like you're talking about this needing to flagellate myself mm-hmm. constantly because it would make things easier. Yeah. I'd have money and I'd, I'd have a house maybe. And like, yeah. but, but yeah. I, I think the key for me was finding when I found, when I met my wife was like, she got it and mm-hmm. she's, she doesn't need me to change. And yes, there are certain like, yeah, certain things that come with being in a community relationship that I have to be conscious of. But that was a big shift. I always felt like yeah. the women I dated through my life often, I don't know, there was an, I was like, I can't do this forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a beautiful thing to find. That's so Congratulations. Like a rare thing. Thank <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah. Do you. Let me ask, do you have time to like date people and stuff? <laughs> and we don't have to talk about if it's personal. I, uh, yes, I do have, I do have time to date people. Yeah. And, and you make sure they understand. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's run into problems over the years because, uh, I definitely have chosen to come down and paint instead of go hang out with their friends or whatever else <laughs> needs to go on in order to maintain a relationship at, at some point. Right. So, um, yeah, and I'll, and I'll, they'll find out pretty quickly that it's like, I will only shift my routine so far. Yeah. Um, but I have to say that within a relationship, hopefully I'm better at these things now. Hopefully I recognize this about myself. Yeah. Um, and, uh, that comes up a little bit less. I mean, I think at this point, you know, especially if someone's working all the time, my schedule is much more loosey goosey. Sure. So like it's, and especially in New York, people are busy all the time. So yeah. it's more like I'm, I'm more of a perfect boyfriend at this point. Cause I, I can fit into anyone's schedule, like right. whatever it is, like, you know, you, you, uh, you work all night, like I'll, you know, I'll, I'll be up during the daytime. You yeah. work all day. I'll be up during the nighttime. Like yeah. I'll meet you any day of the week to do this thing. So, now I'm maybe a little bit better. That, but in terms of yeah. financial stability or anything like that, it's like, hmm, I'm sure I get traded out for the finance guy. <laughs> well, you know, the finance guys don't have these Hegelian explanations <laughs> for these surreal March Simpson paintings. You might. Yeah, maybe that's, that's a little bit of my, my edge on this. I don't know. <laughs> um, you Okay, so you have, what's your website? It's chasingmathems.com? Yeah, chasingmathems.com. Cool. Um, and then my Instagram uh, is, is my name as well, chasingmathems. And that's where, I mean, I announce most things and through Instagram at this point. For, for artists, Instagram reigns supreme at this point. Yeah. It's like where everything happens. Do you know, how do artists get verified on Instagram? Are you verified? I am not verified on Instagram. Me neither. I've never, I never tried it. Yeah. Do you know, I guess it's Banksy. He's probably like the I'm one. I'm sure he must be verified, right? It's like being in the, it's like the approximation being in the Whitney. Right? Yeah. Ha- you have to have had a something. I don't know. Yeah. I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying to think now of the artists that I follow. And I guess some of them do have that little blue check mark, right? Is yeah. that what's going on? Yeah. The yeah. blue check mark by their name. So they've been verified at some point but i think once you get to be a big enough artist then you're like friends with the celebrities maybe they tell you how to do it <laughs> or maybe someone on instagram is buys one of your paintings and that's the be- that's the- that's in your contract <laughs> yeah yeah then then you then you know you can rise up i mean i can't stress the importance of of instagram uh yeah for for the art world i mean some people don't use it but i always joke that instagram did more for me than art school did or going to get really? my mfa or anything like that uh, you because yeah you're you're very active and popular on instagram well i i rarely ever post it at, at this point I, yeah. don't, I don't really have that many followers or anything um but it, it's and and you don't need that many followers once again it's 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 just like having the right followers um, right is is important but i mean in terms of it, what instagram did was uh it it made it like it actually started my career of showing paintings i can't call it a career the 
two or three shows that I've had or whatever came from Instagram. They didn't come from a connection that I'd made at grad school or in my 19 years of work uh, or no, or living in New York or whatever. You got like DM'd by galleries or something? It, it was, it, yeah, it was, well, it was totally random. It was more that this like guy at Soho Art that used to just chat me up down there and I would just be like, who is this guy? He's like kind of hitting on me. Like, I don't know about this whole thing, but then it right. turned out he was really knowledgeable about materials. And then this random person one day was like, hey, remember me? Like, I have this opportunity to do this show in Berlin with this collector. And I was like, bullshit, this person's crazy. There's <laughs> right. no way that this is going to happen sort of thing. But he did. He knew this collector right. in Berlin and he, he brought me out there and put me in this show. And then like that collector Instagrammed one of my artworks. And oh. then another collector was there and Instagrammed my artwork. And then the gallery people take notice because they're like, this person is making some money off of their artwork and we want a cut of it. So, right. And he doesn't have a gallery. So let's like get in on that whole situation. Ah, the tastemakers. Yes. The, yeah. So here's, this is, might be a weird question, Jason. Mm-hmm. So being like a, a handsome young man in New York <laughs> in the art scene, <laughs> Thank do, you, you. do you feel like that is how maybe how actor, young actresses feel in LA? Do you feel like you get hit <laughs> on and like sexualized a little bit or do can you use that to your advantage or do you not think about it? Oh, I love this question. <laughs> I don't know if I ever asked you that. <laughs> Um, I mean, there's the, uh, there's the gay mafia within the art world uh -huh. and they are ever present. And, uh, I, um, am friends with a lot of gay guys yeah. in the art world, but I do not feel like an actress because at no point do I feel like I'm going to be, I've never been scared or in a situation that I think is too creepy or anything like that. Okay. Um, but I, you know, if we talk about privilege, like, yeah. like uh, I, we, we grew up in California, went to a private school, white male, whatever. All of that doesn't compare at all to being slightly attractive. <laughs> right. People are so much nicer to you if you are, if, and I'm not that attractive. Like I'm like, I'm okay. Like I'm like a seven maybe or something <laughs> like that. Let's not get carried away here. But that still is like a pretty big advantage when it comes to right. socializing if you're in a, a social world. So um, no, if anything, I just like it. And yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, I like the attention and sometimes it's a little bit creepy and sometimes you set up boundaries, but do guys ever think like, think you, I don't know your sexuality. Are you, I'm straight. You're straight. Okay. So yeah. do guys ever, I don't know. How do you, cause if you're an artist, mm -hmm. this might, I don't know, don't mean to sound stereotypical, but there are a lot of great gay artists. Mm -hmm. So how do they know if you're they ask you, they kind of have a, a cue. I don't know. Well, here's, here's where it gets tricky. Yeah. When I can play it to my advantage, I'll be gay for as long as it works in my advantage. Right. <laughs> that, that's not true. <laughs> I'll pretend that I'm gay as long as it's in my advantage. Also not true, but maybe a little bit sort of. You thing. don't say no. Like, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know how it is. It's like any, anyone that you're, it's, it, I mean, it's all creepy once you start getting into sexuality and stuff. But like, yeah. even if even if someone sets up a boundary with you, there's always that little thing in their head or like, maybe no, maybe, yeah. maybe I know he says he's straight, but maybe not. <laughs> he seems to be really nice to me. And I'm like open and nice and smiley and want to talk and everything. Yeah, and so I have like, connections. <laughs> or no, the guy's thinking I have connections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's like this, so it's a question of the power dynamic I, I wonder if it's weird. You're a very friendly person, mm -hmm. and I know you would never like manipulate someone. <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't, and I wouldn't know how to. Uh, yeah. to tell you the truth, right. either. I've I've never been able to 
play the game that I've seen other people play <laughs> sure. within the social game within the art world that, that some people play very, very well. And I've seen them have a lot of success from doing it. And I am terrible at that game. Like you take me, like when I went to that the networking situ- game, the networking yeah, game. Yeah. Yeah. Like when we were, we're, when I was talking about this, like guy taking me to Berlin or, or I'm sorry, to, um, uh, Brussels is what I meant to Brussels to this art fair or whatever um, like they're going to all the fancy art dinners and meeting all these important people and everything yeah. and I'm just like sitting at the place that I've been assigned at the table and they're like coming over and being like why aren't you networking you should be up you should talk to that person and that person and meanwhile I've right. been having one conversation for an hour and a half and being like you know we have to leave to get to the next party and I'm like bye Susan I'll see you later I hope your son-in-law does okay with his cancer treatments and I'll try to keep uh, get in contact with your whatever your right you know in New York and I'm just like I don't know how to do that whole social thing it just I don't have the bandwidth for it or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I feel you, man. I think that's music too. A lot of successful musicians are very good at networking and being political, and it's it's never been interesting to me. Yeah, and I always want like I've always yeah been lucky to have people who can help me book shows or mm-hmm. like I have a great a really great manager. But my first manager was gay, and it was there was there was a little <laughs> bit of I don't know. I, it was it was interesting because it's like young college dudes in the music industry. There was this like feeling like it's like a fashion show a little bit, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, and oh, and totally. I, I love I love my first manager. He's a great friend, but that was always like I don't know. It's it's you don't want to be too political, and I never wanted to like <laughs> I don't know play something to my advantage. But mm-hmm. you're selling yourself at yeah. the end of the day. Yeah, and yeah, and people expect you to like Warhol was so good at politicking. Wasn't yeah, he? yes, that was one of his superpowers. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I no, I I understand what 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 you're saying as well too, because you yeah. you want to have the charisma and you want to have the appeal, but you don't want to put out the wrong message either. A lot of the time as well. Yeah, uh, I mean, for the most part, it's just comical to tell you the truth. And there's a time that I like kind of bow out from those situations. Uh-huh. It'll be like me and like twelve gay guys, and they'll just be like you know we're going to this thing where they like close you in a room until five in the morning and i'm like okay like i'll let you guys do that i'm gonna go back to the hotel room at this point so right have fun you have to know when to kind of bow out of, of those situations as well too um but yeah it's mostly comical it's funny i was i was actually i was on a date recently and uh we went to the art book fair and I was there and I passed one of uh, a good friend that I, it was a good friend that's a painter and he came up and he gave me a, and we had just started dating and we were just kind of having this conversation of like, well, are you seeing anyone else? Uh, uh, yeah. You know, that, that sort of whole thing. <laughs> like, what is this between us sort yeah, of situation? Yeah. We had this conversation. We walked into this thing and this guy comes up and he's like, hi, love. And he gives me a big old <laughs> kiss sort of thing. And she was like- On the lips? No. I mean, it was kind of close because we were in passing sort of thing. Thing from her angle I don't know exactly what she saw or whatever and it was but, a dude yeah and it was a dude and she <laughs> and she was just like I, I thought it was funny but she looked at me I was like oh this she actually doesn't know me that well and this is like maybe a, you're bisexual yeah this is like a thing for her she's like wait what is, is he is he bisexual has he seen that man yeah like, do they have a like what is going on there you're like so I'm an artist <laughs> it happens no, it's just like they're, it's, they're a very affectionate group of people around <laughs> right. sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, it's, yeah, mostly comical things like that. <laughs> well, it's interesting talking about going back to the, talking about Alex Wang. He was mm-hmm. proud to be himself. And I really let's. Yeah. Like, 
the war is so interesting to think of how we went to high school at a time that was literally almost like a century ago. Yeah. And how, yeah, a lot of your art is about breaking boundaries and trying to synthesize meaning in like mm-hmm. these confusing, exciting times. And it's really been a privilege talking to you, Jason. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to have you here. It's cool, man. And I, um, yeah, I, yeah it's, I love your paintings and I hope that the listeners will check out your work and I'll tweet next show you got. Cool. Next showing and um, I'm into yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, we should end with a song. Okay. Do you have any recommendations? Oh, the Nine Inch Nails, Mr. Self-Destruct. <laughs> we'll find, let's find like, a cool, we'll find like a cool cover of it. <laughs> and we'll end with that's perfect. Oh, that would be so perfect. Please. <laughs> we'll find like a sensitive, relaxed, in the preview to the podcast, I'll, I'll say what we're going to play, but okay. So here's yeah, 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 yeah. A, a surprising cover of Mr. Self-Destruct. <laughs> cool. Oh, Perfect.
That was the Goth Acoustic Ensemble covering Mr. Self-Destruct by Nine Inch Nails. Great interview with Chasen Mathams. Be sure to follow him on Instagram. Check out his website. And this week for the MC, MC Lars, Lars Patreon, Patreon Larson, Larson of, the, of week, the week, we got my dude Walter, a Southern gentleman who's been very supportive of the nerdcore scene for years, came out and saw us on the Aquabats tour. Great dude. He talks about some of his memories. And he's just a lovely guy. So, Walter, you got a free MC Lars shirt. If you want to be on the MC Lars podcast, giving shout-outs, telling stories, sign up, patreon.com slash MC Lars. You get the special phone number, and I'll play your message and send you some free merch. So, Walter, thank you. Here is his cool message. Hey, Lars, this is Walter. Um, in some circles, known as Walter the Southern Gentleman. So, I discovered you because I had seen a Camaro driving down the road and mentioned Bitchin' Camaro from the Dead Milkman song. And I'd mentioned that, and my son, who was probably about 11 years old at the time, um, I said, have, have I not played that song for you? And he goes, no. So I went to Amazon Music to look that up and play it for him and to maybe stream it, and it was nowhere on there. There was no Dead Milkman on Amazon Music for the Prime streaming, except... For Mr. Raven with our good friends, the Dead Milkmen, providing the music. And so that is how I discovered you. I, I listened to that track first, and then I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Let me listen to the rest of the um, the album. So I listened to the rest of the album, and that was cool. And then I saw that you had an immense catalog, and I'm like, I need to hear all of this. So, yeah, and uh, the first time you rolled around was... Uh, after that was probably about four months later, and uh, I brought my son to the show, and, uh, and we got to meet you, and he was actually on stage for Mr. Raven. Uh, you might remember him as MC Mario Kid, and now he's in a band, which is really cool. Take care. Peace. Thanks, dude. That was awesome. Thank you for your support and love. Next week, we have Blake J. Harris. He wrote a great book called Console Wars, and... He came out with a book recently called The History of the Future about virtual reality and the Oculus. And Console Wars is being developed into both a documentary, full-length documentary, and a TV series with Seth Rogen. And so uh, Blake talks about the writing process growing up in New York, uh, how he sh left his job uh, as doing trading and did art full-time, became a writer full-time, and what it's like now writing scripts for these programs. So Blake is a very humble, cool dude. Many of you may have heard on the mixtape I did with Megaran, we did a song about the console wars, and we sent it to Blake, and he liked it. So he came by and talked about his writing process. It was really cool to meet him. So that is next week, nerdcoretour.com for the Oakley Doakley dates. It starts Friday, and I'll be updating y'all from the road. But this has been a great episode. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Peace.